We're all feeling pretty helpless these days as we witness the horrors in Israel and Palestine and in Ukraine and in several other wars around the world. It's pretty obvious that the world's approach to warfare is simply not working and we need something new. Wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to feel helpless? What if we actually had tools that could manage this? In today's episode, we're going to talk about how we could build stronger international systems to approach this in a way that individual countries cannot, so that humanity could actually have the tools to manage violent conflict instead of having to helplessly watch it. Let's dig in. Welcome to the Human Survival Podcast, where we aim for world cooperation on critical threats to humanity. To survive, we must see ourselves first as citizens of the human race. To thrive, we must protect what is beautiful about humanity. This show is offered by the Human Survival Project, a grassroots movement for citizens around the world to push for a redesigned and much stronger United Nations. Our global threats need global cooperation. This is urgent, so let's start. Hey everyone, just a quick message before we start. Those of you watching this on YouTube may notice that our guests were not recorded in very good quality. I made a, a mistake as I was recording. I hit the wrong button and I didn't do it right. So it's not up to my really high standards, but we're gonna roll it with it anyway because it was an amazing conversation that I know that you'll uh, learn from and enjoy. So uh, here you go. Hi friends, welcome to the Human Survival Podcast. I'm Shelby Martis, thanks for joining us. So it's been a little while since I've seen you here on the show. And the reason is because I've been busy creating a new organization. Uh, this is not only a podcast and a YouTube channel. Um, I and over 30 volunteers are helping to create the Human Survival Project, which is a global organization to rally citizens around the world, pushing for a redesigned and much stronger United Nations so that humanity has the global tools it needs to deal with its global existential threats like climate change, destruction of nature, pandemics, nuclear weapons, advancing technologies like artificial intelligence and synthetic biology, um, poverty and inequality, which gets in the way of solving our other threats, uh, climate-driven migration, basically the whole global mess that nations are not equipped to handle. And so we have been doing an insane amount of work lately to launch this organization, including um, some social media, some website work, some creating videos to explain all these issues, um, and a ton of research and writing and analysis of the kind of policy proposals we want to offer the world and get people thinking about. So this enormous team um, doing amazing work is keeping me pretty busy. And so that's why I haven't been with you for a little bit. But soon with their help, I hope to be creating episodes of this show much more regularly. So hang in there, look out for that. Um, and of course, subscribe so you'll know when they come. So today's topic is a big one. Um, 
I have a couple guests with me to talk about it who I'll introduce in a few minutes, but I first want to just talk for a few minutes and set up the topic and kind of frame this discussion. Um, I, like everyone, and am, am incredibly sad and hurt by what's happening in Israel and, and Gaza right now. Um, it's just tragic, and I hate to even have to be here talking about it, but it's got to get talked about, so here we go. Um, I think that we today are about to offer a unique perspective on this issue. Um, since October 7th, um, when the violence broke out there, I've been consuming, like everybody, so many articles, interviews, podcasts, trying to wrap my head around this and understand it better, and like everyone, just process what's happening here. And um, the ideas we're going to share today, I haven't heard anyone say in all this content I've consumed, like I really think we're offering something unique to the conversation. And I hope we push it forward and offer some new ideas for how the world can approach these issues. Um, the Human Survival Project has, um, we're addressing issues of war and security as part of what we do because it's an existential threat. Um, Part of the reason for that is that it consumes bandwidth and distracts everyone from all our other existential threats. So right now we're going through this tragic time in Israel and Palestine where many thousands of people have died and many, many more are suffering. It is truly tragic. Um, but on the other hand, I and this organization are trying to keep billions of people from dying and suffering due to the list of existential threats that I mentioned a moment ago. And so right now we've got an enormous amount of time and energy being spent on this conflict. Everyone's consumed by it. This is time and energy we're not spending on solving climate change, on preparing for future pandemics you know, solving nuclear weapons, et cetera. And so because it consumes so much bandwidth, it really is an existential threat. Um, it's challenging right now in the world. Um, obviously, the, the sides fighting in this conflict right now are hurt and wounded and angry. And I empathize with everybody involved. Um, and then that's happening outside of Israel. You've got people in a bunch of different countries, different countries taking different sides and sort of butting heads with each other about it. And some are supporting the Israel government. Some are supporting the people of Palestine. And they're just like butting heads. And the conflict is all over the world now at least in a conversational sense. And even citizens within individual countries are fighting with each other. Um, what I wanna do with this conversation today is try to step out of all that. I don't wanna just pick a side and beat on the other side. It's just not what I'm interested in doing um, because I care about all the people there who are suffering. 
um, and I want to help everybody. I just want to try to fix this. And so what I want to do with this conversation is not approach it like what I've been hearing elsewhere is like, what should Israel do or what should Hamas do or what should the United States do or, you know, what should other Middle Eastern countries do? I want to say, what should the world do? What should humanity as a whole do in a situation like this? Especially if humanity was prepared with tools to address a conflict like this and to help it stop. So that's kind of the direction we're going to head with this conversation. Um, the Human Survival Project, we are developing um, a lot of ideas about what a newer, redesigned, and much stronger United Nations would look like. And there are many reasons for doing this, like all the existential threats I mentioned. We just need better ways to manage the world in a way that countries cannot. Um, but war is one of the existential threats that we face, you know, not only because it distracts us from everything else, but we've got nuclear weapons in play, which could annihilate everybody and is still an enormous risk that hasn't been solved. But then we've got technology um, increasing over the years. So all our other tools of war are so much more powerful than they used to be. So we saw how brutal World War II was. Um, it really set humanity back, you know, generations and killed so many people and caused so much suffering and displacement. It was brutal. But that technology would be primitive compared to today in terms of the tools of war. So if superpowers really unleash their militaries on each other now, it would put humanity into a primitive state, um, and we would lose all the progress that we've made over the last several decades. Um, and so that's what we're trying to avoid. And so that's why a redesigned United Nations with better tools could help us manage this instead of the dynamics we see today of um, arms races and countries trying to deter each other by having stronger militaries, it just leads to arms races that are incredibly dangerous. And so a UN could help us step out of that dynamic. So the kinds of tools we're considering are not only useful, useful for Israel in this current conflict, if they existed, but also could help humanity through um, this destructive risk that we're in right now. So basically, we're in progress right now. Um, I'm going to offer you a few ideas that we're thinking about, but I don't want you to see these as, you know, the Human Survival Project's definitive policy proposals and stances. These are things that we're in the middle of researching and thinking about right now. And so in this conversation, we're going to just invite you into our process of thinking about it, basically. Um, so here's some of the key elements of it, um, and I won't cover it all, and we won't even get to all of it today in our conversation, but let me just preview some of the things we're thinking about. So a much stronger United Nations would be redesigned so that it really represents humanity as a whole, 
So currently, um, it is very dominated by five countries who are on the, per the permanent members of the Security Council, and each of them have a veto. So this is the US, China, Russia, the UK, and France. If one of those countries doesn't like something, they can stop it and it doesn't happen. So this is a recipe for inaction. And so very little happens at the UN, at the UN because these countries stand in the way. But it also leaves disproportionate power in the hands of those five uh, countries. And so um, a UN that functions better would really um, have everyone in the world fairly represented there. And then with that, it would have more powers to do more things. So on the military front, we would have an international peacekeeping force that is much stronger than today's peacekeepers. Um, today's peacekeepers only get involved if a country invites them in and says, okay, come in and help us. And typically to um, enforce a treaty or agreement that has already been worked out between two parties. Um, we propose a much stronger international force that would basically act like police for the world. And it would be much stronger than any individual country's military. So at the same time, we're ramping down every national government's military through a negotiated process where everyone is reducing their military and the UN would be much stronger than any individual country. So that would mean that basically no country in the world is above the law. But then that international military would be enforcing rules. And so managing conflict would not be tied in with the national concerns and desires that it currently is by national government's military. It could be more neutral, more impartial, more representing the, um, basically representing what humanity as a whole needs and wants, rather than being used to jostle for influence and national gain. So it would be very based on rules, laws, and enforcements. And other enforcements would be in play too, in addition to military. So things like a well-organized economic sanctions regime um, or a robust court system where people or countries could be taken to court to decide whether they've followed laws or not. Um, so there would be other enforcements. And then one final thing we're thinking about on the military front is um, a situation where arms trade or supplying arms to a country only happens with United Nations approval um, because a historic problem, including now, is that sometimes a local conflict can become a proxy war where different sides come in and support two sides of that conflict. Um, and so we've seen that in Yemen, Syria, um, all throughout the Cold War. This was the dynamic between the US and Soviet Union where weapons get supplied to each side and it intensifies a conflict. And so basically the UN would say, no, that's not allowed. 
And if someone needs to get supplied with weapons, it would be um, because humanity as a whole has decided that they need that help, you know? So, so anyway, these are the tools we're thinking about. And what I wanna do with today's conversations with our very smart guests is basically think about these tools and say, okay, if we had these tools in place right now, could we handle the Israeli-Palestine conflict differently? Now, I will acknowledge that none of these UN, like we're not going to fix the UN in time to fix Israel right now. Like that's not what we're after. We're using this conflict as an example of what's going wrong in the world and how the world is unprepared to manage conflict. And so um, through this lens of the Israeli conflict, we can say, okay, what kind of a world do we need? And how can we be better prepared for future situations that come up? Um, and, you know, maybe a stronger UN will help with Israel because it's been a mess for many years and it might be a mess for many more. Um, so anyway, that's what we're going to take a look at. So... Now, let me introduce our two really smart guests who I love. Um, both of these guys are involved with the Human Survival Project right now. They're part of this crew of so many people um, who is researching and analyzing and writing about the various policy proposals that we want to offer. Um, ben Gavin. Um, he recently got his master's degree in international development from the University of Denver. And then prior to that, he got uh, two bachelor's degrees from Loyola University in Chicago in uh, international studies and international business. And he has also spent significant time studying and working in Japan, Kenya, Tunisia, Vietnam, Cambodia, maybe other places I've missed. He's been around. Um, he now lives in Tennessee in the United States. Ben Gavin, welcome. Thank you for having me, Shelby, in that great introduction, although I definitely don't deserve it. <laughs> Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> and Sarmad Wali Khan is with us. Um, he earned his bachelor's degree in political science in 2020 from Government College University in Lahore, Pakistan. Since then, he's worked as, as a university lecturer and curriculum developer in political science, gender studies, Pakistan studies, history, interdisciplinary studies. Uh, I think some more things I might have missed. Um, he's a really well-rounded guy. Um, he's also worked as a researcher and writer with the Borgen Project, um, which is an advocacy organization that addresses global poverty and inequality. Sarmad, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Total delight to be here. Great. And I'll mention that both Ben and Sarmad are applying to graduate schools right now to continue their studies. And I encourage any school that they apply to, to take these guys. They're really, really smart, hard workers. So I hope um, an amazing school will be smart enough to accept them soon. So um, 
so both of you heard me um, just set up the topic and talk for a little bit and offer some ideas. Um, I have, it, you know, some maybe thought-provoking questions I can offer in a minute, but I want to just give you the floor to um, offer any reactions you might have, or just in general, any thoughts and feelings you're carrying these days, because I know that you also have been agonizing about this situation we're observing there. Um, what's on your mind lately? Um, let's start with you, Samad. Uh, lately, I have been observing this uh, Israel and the conflict going on in Israel and Palestine. And it is quite mind-boggling. And at the same time, it is disturbing to witness that on a massive scale, things are happening. There are videos, there are images. And those people are being portrayed sometimes as animals and sometimes as savages and sometimes as children of evil. I mean, the propaganda is like painting them as non-humans totally. And the whole world is watching. We are watching it on our Instagram reels. We are watching it on our Facebook stories, on WhatsApp statuses. And still the whole world is, I, I mean, it's not trying to do anything. And we as global citizens feel that what we can do. And literally we don't, we don't, we can't do much rather than posting and reposting. So it is at the same time becomes quite depressing for an individual to enjoy little moments when you find an image of a baby just being, you know, bombed inside in a hospital and you see their like wounded bodies. It is totally disturbing. And uh, when we see that the global institutions or um, as far as the helplessness of the global institutions like United Nations, even not for, you know, uh, even for a ceasefire, I mean, many countries moved a resolution and some of the superpowers, mainly the United Nations, the United States, just vetoed, just vetoed that. I mean, these are some harsh truths and harsh facts that are just disturbing as global citizens. So, I mean, recently for the past few weeks, I mean, I'm not in a right state of mind. Neither are my friends. Because when you, whenever you open the social media or you watch news, it's disturbing that what can we do about it? So this is a depressing, depressing situation, I would say. Amid what you said, I'm really struck by um, the helplessness that so many of us feel. And that, you know, we want to do something, so we're just posting and reposting on social media, which doesn't actually fix anything. Um, and wouldn't it be nice if we had a better outlet for our citizenship and our desires, if we could actually be involved in a United Nations process that could actually do something? So, Ben, what are you thinking right now? Thank you, Sarmad. I, I think that was a really great introduction. I got to say, I feel a lot of uh, the same way. I'll give some facts about Gaza right now. So the population is about 2.5 million people. It's an area about the size of New Jersey. Half of these people living in Gaza are children. So I'm sure you know this. It's surrounded by the sea and the separation wall. There's about three checkpoints in and out of Gaza, maybe a few more. All these checkpoints are shut down. So it's been called an open air prison. 
you're bombing all these targets right now, yet people can't leave. In fact, we've seen a UN school be bombed. We've seen uh, refugee camps be bombed. And to echo Sarmad's sentiment, you know, one of the most obvious failures of the current uh, United Nations is the veto power of the permanent five members on the Security Council. You know, we when it was created, we were in a post-World War II world. You know, there's been so many things that have happened. It's been, what, 80 years since World War II? So, you know, one could argue that we are living in a post-Cold War world or a post-9-11 world. But the fact that we're living in a, so to speak, immediate post-World War II world is just not relevant anymore. So the way the UN is currently set up, you have basically the winners of World War II that have an asymmetric amount of power in the world. So as Sarmad brought up, there was actually a res uh, in the Security Council, they debated uh, passing a resolution that would condemn the killing of civilians in Gaza and would also try to pause for humanitarian aid. Every single country either voted for that or to abstain except for the United States. Since the United States vetoed it, we couldn't have that happen from the Security Council. And mind you, the Security Council are the people with the authority to distribute peacekeeping forces, not saying that peacekeeping forces being uh, deployed to Israel or Gaza was anything that was ever on the table. However, it's hard to make progress when uh, one country can just have that much power. That is just not a popular opinion in the whole world. And in fact, there's adversaries on uh, the Security Council. You know, the United States, Russia, China, UK, France, like those are kind of conflicting uh, Cold War, uh, you know, entities. So, um, you know, thank God right now we have a four-hour pause for humanitarian aid to get in and out of Gaza. This is a recent development, but, you know, it's not enough. There's still civilians being killed every day. And it's a start. We'll see where it develops. I know one thing that often gets talked about is our war crimes being committed. There's a lot of gray area here, and we can get into this more. There's essentially two uh, written pieces that dictate the rules of war. That is the Geneva Convention. In fact, there's been four Geneva Conventions. We can get into that later. And there's also the Rome Statute. But Israel, the United States, China, Russia are not signed on to that. But we can get into that more later. So it feels very helpless of what we can do as an international community. You know, we do have somewhat of a responsibility to respect state sovereignty, but it's kind of hard and frustrating to just sit here and, you know, see a government do something so unpopular in the world that results in, unfortunately, the death of a lot of civilians and uh, especially children, you know? Of course, I have to condemn Hamas. Of course, what they did was evil. You know, in 2006, Hamas gained control of Gaza. They're not as popular there. Uh, they've refused to hold elections since 2006. So it's quite a sticky scenario, but ultimately the people paying the price of the civilians and especially children of Gaza. So that's where we're at. We can talk about the rules of warfare later, but one thing I'll say is, you know, where we failed is we've, we've outlawed chemical weapons. That, that's done. You know, there's been still scenarios where it's been used in modern history. We can talk about Iraq. We can talk about Syria. I think the thing that gets brought up a lot is the use of white phosphorus bombs. Are they chemical weapons? There's some gray area there. There's some debate on that. And, uh, you know, we've seen strong evidence of this being used in Gaza. And we've also seen strong evidence of this being used in Ukraine by Russian forces. So as it stands, we do have pieces of, so to speak, legislation that govern the rules of war. Everybody in the UN, all 193 nations, in the UN have signed off on the current Geneva Convention. But, you know, we look around, actually, the UN will say in 2016 was the highest uh, amount of global conflicts we've had in the last 30 years. In fact, the amount of violent conflicts is increasing in the world. 
So we're failing. You know, it's better than nothing that we have these two pieces of, uh, so to speak, legislation or guidelines for the rules of warfare, but it hasn't been enough. We've had violence increase in the world. So we can get into this more later, but it's just what we currently have is not enough. That's what I'll conclude with for now. Thank you. Um, you know, this issue of war crimes and what's allowed under international law, um, it, you know, for me, it, it feels like international law is maybe useful as an expression of values, but it's not much more than that. I mean, it's just words because there's no enforcement mechanisms in place to make it matter. And so countries ignore these things all the time. And so currently, you know, I've heard these discussion and debates about, um, you know, what people should be allowed to do or not allowed to do. And, you know, um, especially around Israel choking off food and water and supplies and fuel to the people of Palestine. Um, but, I mean, nobody's able to stop it, you know, um, in, in, in various conflicts, sometimes it'll be allowed, but, you know, and other times people will be seen as war criminals for doing it. And it just depends on who's in power at the moment or who's able to influence the situation or who's supporting who. And wouldn't it be nice if we had a world set up where we just had clear laws like this is what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And if you break the law, there's going to be consequences, whether that's economic or trade or military, or you're going to get put in jail or, you know, whatever those consequences need to be. But that would be a sensible world based on world policy, you know. Um, that's what I'm hoping for. But, you know, it, if we... If we went in that direction, then, I mean, let's consider what would be those tools that the world could use. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to simply um, bash on Israel about that because um, they have their own safety concerns and their own wounds and their own, you know, thing they're going through. But um, I don't know. We, you know, if we had an international military, for instance, you know, what I'm thinking is, okay, if Hamas needs to be neutralized in some fashion to provide more safety for Israel, um, could we have an international force do that instead that could be more neutral, more impartial? You know, something I worry about right now is that um, Israel might completely overdo it. Some argue that they are already. And it's hard for them to make rational decisions when they're so wounded and hurt and angry and emotions are running so strong. It's just psychologically not a situation for calm, rational decision making. And so, um, I mean, I worry that Israel is just going to overdo it, and then you're going to have another generation of Palestinians that wants to destroy Israel because they've overdone it, and they've killed so many people, and they made them homeless and denied them food. And like, 
you know, even Palestinians that were more easygoing um, will be pretty angry after this. And, you know, it doesn't quite solve the problem when countries are just acting out of retribution and anger. And so if we had an international force that could step in and handle some of that, it might be more measured, might be more sensible, might be more strategic. You know, um, instead of leveling a whole country, it would be more of a policing operation where we're going to send some people in there, we're going to investigate, we're going to round up some people who need to be put in jail. You know, that's the approach rather than just level a place. So, uh, I guess, uh, sorry to interrupt, Shelby. Uh, I guess uh, we are jumping a little ahead with the military force right now. Maybe, of course, if there is an international body and it is a re redesigned or reformed UN and it has an international force, but we cannot use force any all the time except for special circumstances for a ceasefire. Yeah. But eventually after that, we have to work on arbitration and mediation measures that how this conflict is going to be resolved. And for that, we have to go back to the root cause of the problem which is the Palestinian and Jewish question. And as per, the, according to that problem, we have to tailor a solution which can provide safety to both Jews and Palestinian people. Whether that is a two-state solution, one-state solution, no matter how it is, but they have to negotiate that out. And for that, it cannot be negotiated in a way that one side is totally bombing or occupying or, you know, colonizing the land, and the other side is having mere stones. I mean, stone has a history in Palestinian resistance because they don't have anything to fight when it comes to normal public. They use stones at the tanks. So unless that conflict is resolved and both communities are able to, you know, somewhat recognize each other and their presence, I mean, it cannot be a long-term solution to put a military force out there. Because, of course, for a moment, it will be fine. But eventually, you have to sort it out. Otherwise, the conflict will go on and on, like it's been 70 years. And it, you know, it repeats itself again, again and again. So this is something that should be considered. Definitely. You know, the analogy I um have been thinking about is it's like israel and palestine have been in a dysfunctional relationship you know these two peoples are in relationship they interact with each other they share a space and for me it feels almost like a married couple that really needs to divorce it's like it, you know, <laughs> I don't want to go too deep into my personal life, but I I went through a divorce many years ago, and me and my ex-wife were caught in cycles of anger, and we were upset with each other, and, um, you know, each had grievances, and we were just, like, fighting and arguing and too angry to think straight, and we couldn't get out of it ourselves. And so we had a negotiated process with some lawyers and a court who could help us like, okay, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to look out for the kids, you know, 
It's like we needed help to figure ourselves out, you know? And that's how I think a UN with some powers and abilities could do that and could just go in and say, hey, you guys are not getting along. You've been fighting for years. It has to stop. And and somehow help them negotiate something, but then have um, the UN to enforce that. You know, like, okay, we've decided you're going to do this and you're going to do this, but somebody has to make sure you actually do that. Make sure you honor your agreement. Um, and right now, we just don't have the tools for that. If I may interject, I think that's a good subway in that there are actually two courts, so to speak, that do have some degree of uh, arbitration, if you will. So there's uh, the ICC and the ICJ. So the ICC is the International Criminal Court, and the ICJ is the International Court of Justice. So the ICC is actually not part of the UN. It's separate. It was established in 2002 by the Rome Statute, and that goes after prosecuting war criminals. The ICJ sounds a bit more like what you're describing. So this is actually part of the United Nations. It doesn't prosecute individual people the same way that the ICC does. What it does do is it provides arbitration between countries. But it's just not been strong enough. It's not been effective. In fact, the case of the separation wall in Gaza has been brought to the ICJ. And pretty much all we got is, hmm, that's a problem, huh? Without like any sort of tangible solution. Like... The, you you know, we brought this to this court, you can bring things to the court, the court can make a decision. But as it stands, how do you necessarily go about enforcing that? And then when, say, Israel has the backing of the United States, a P5 member on the Security Council, there's really nothing you can do. And we can look at the war on Ukraine, where war crimes are most likely being committed as well. You really can't do anything on the internet with our current uh, system, because Russia is a P5 member. So as long as P5, you know, we talk about the dangers of proxy wars between global hegemons, and that's kind of what our system is designed to do right now. When you have, you know, is the UK, France still a hegemon? Who knows? But, you know, Russia, China, USA, definitely still hegemons. When you have such big powers on the P5, that kind of just gives them the, the kind of gives them unlimited uh, power. They can do whatever they want with no consequences. I mean, sure, individual states can put sanctions on people like we've seen in Russia, but uh, as far as the UN, like not, not really much has tangibly been done. And there's been cases of, uh, you know, failures with peacekeeping that we can get into more uh, later. But the current, my point is the current bodies that we have for arbitration clearly are ineffective. Uh, I agree to that, Ben, that whatever you have said about ICC and ICJ, these international courts are unable to, I mean, I'm not pretty sure, but if I am wrong, please correct me, that their decisions are usually not binding upon certain countries and they can just get away with it sometimes. And some people, some countries are not even trialed. For example, if there are some cases on United States on, you know, abusing certain human rights in Latin America. But those cases have not been you know, uh, decided upon or something like that. And at the same time, the P5 situation suggests that it is somewhat like uh, a global system made by the victors of, global, uh, of World War II and they act as an oligarchy to control the world affairs in their favor. So at the top... Uh, at the top, at the United Nations, we have a governing system 
which is totally undemocratic. And the beneficiaries of the, that undemocratic system are those countries like United States who are who is who claims to be the harbinger of liberalism and democracy. Can you see the contradiction here? At home and overall in, in Iraq, in Syria, in Egypt, and in uh, Libya, what United States says? It says we are the promoters of democracy. But at UN, it benefits from a system of a veto benefits from a veto system which is totally non-democratic. So see the irony here. I mean, and this is the reason that we have to democratize our world institutions so that they can have more legitimacy and so that they are they do not remain in a paralysis in which they are right now. In the absence of that international system, um, so many countries expect the United States to be the world's police, you know, and and pro provide protection because it has the world's strongest military, by far stronger than any other country, mm -hmm. and it has military bases all around the world. And, it, you know, people of uh, the U.S. is... Um, often wanted to play that role, and others have wanted them to, but um, then you don't have an impartial enforcement of anything because it's so wrapped up in the United States, what it sees as its an, as its national interests. Yeah. So and and so it'll be flip floppy. You know, sometimes Americans will say, "Oh yeah, we want to go do the right thing and help this country." And then other times it'll be like, hey, we don't want to do anything. We don't want to get involved. It's too expensive and we don't want to lose troops. And, and you can't really rely on the U.S. because it, it, it's just, it's wrapped up in its own interests. That's why we cannot rely on any single country in this regard when it comes to world affairs. And we need a body or a structure which is democratic enough to aggregate the voices of all different countries and global citizens so that it can work in a way, it can take decisions in a way that are beneficial to the most of the people of the globe. You know, some people might think that, um, gosh, why would the U.S. want to give up its power in this way? and might be skeptical, but there are a lot of Americans who are frustrated at how much money and, and troops were spending all the time. I mean, there's been a strong wing of, of people within the US wanting to reduce military spending and be like, hey, why are we handling all this for everybody? Like we can't afford it. Whether we can afford it or not, you know, we can disagree, but um, there are a lot of people who are wanting to pull back on, on US military. So something has to fill that void. You know, if the U.S. just pulls back and then, I don't know, everybody fights with each other to fill in that power vacuum, you know, you need something to fill that. That's an international system to take it over. So. Um, you know, something else I'm thinking about that I, I mentioned earlier on is. Um, Systems that can keep local wars from becoming big proxy wars. 
And, you know, we've seen this so many times in history and even recently. Um, and I'm really worried about that taking place in the current Israel conflict. So you've got right now Israel being supported by the United States and being given weapons and supplies. You've got Hamas being support and Hezbollah being supported by Iran and other um, Middle Eastern countries. And at least verbally, they've been supported in public by Russia and China um, in the war of words, so to speak. And so this could intensify into a big regional conflict. It could even be World War III if people were not careful. And so what if we had a system in the world where... Um, Nobody gets to send weapons in there to either side. And at some point, someone will run out of weapons and it'll be over. Like, um, and, and that would at least keep it contained instead of letting it go into this big explosive mess that damages the world. But to enforce such a thing, you would need um, some pretty organized economic sanctions you would need some international military who could like stop those boats from bringing weapons in or stop those planes from bringing weapons in or stop, you know, check the the train as it's coming in and inspect it. You know, you need staff and, and armed people to do that. But, you know, an international military would not only be about sort of going in and neutralizing by violence, it would be enforcing a setup like that you know, in terms of inspections and, and that kind of a thing. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on that or how that might play out if we had that? Yeah, sure. I can talk about that a bit if that's all right with you. Um, yeah. So I'll just talk. We already have a bit of a precedent with uh, UN peacekeeping forces. So there are, but there's so much criticism one can give with these peacekeeping forces. Um, so there's three principles for uh, engagement, or, to, or there's three principles, I guess, that uh, allow for UN peacekeeping operations. One is you need consent of the parties. So you need the UN and the host nation to consent to it. You need impartiality, and UN peacekeeping forces are not allowed to use any force except in matters of self-defense and defense of the mandate. So the Security Council has to give them permission to actually attack. And there's been a lot of historical failures here. So I think there's two big examples that stand out to me. One is, uh, you know, when Yugoslavia was disbanding in the 90s, there were terrible war atrocities committed on all sides. And it eventually became about sort of wars between ethnicities. So there's a great documentary on B uh, BBC made. It's on YouTube. It's called The Death of Yugoslavia. It's four hours long. But there's a scene in there in uh, Sablanka, I believe is how you pronounce it, where uh, ethnic Serbs in Bosnia are shelling an ethnically Bosnian town, and in this, uh, and there's a hotel in this town that is being shelled, where there are UN peacekeeping forces stationed, and they can't do anything. So literally, you had the, the the citizens of this town basically entrapped UN peacekeeping forces in this hotel, and kind of and just beg them and almost coerce them to protect them. So the commanding officer of the UN had to come out and say against. Um, what the Security Council gave them permission to do, all right, fine, we will protect you, which is going against orders. You know, he can be court-martialed for that, so to speak. So 
clearly it's not enough. And then another uh, failure that also stands out to me is the Rwandan genocide. In 100 days in Rwanda, 800,000 people got killed. In two weeks, 400,000 people died. Well, there was a huge UN presence there, you know, and uh, their orders were to evacuate foreign nationals. Imagine you're a Rwandan citizen and you're seeing these UN convoys leave uh, your country, but you look on this and you only see white people going out. How would that make you feel? What would that make you think that the UN is doing? It would make you probably think, oh, they only care about the protection of, you know, white Westerners. Clearly they failed. Uh, as far as prosecuting the criminals of these war crimes, um, there actually was as, uh, two separate tribunals, one for the Rwandan genocide, one for the war crimes committed in Yugoslavia. There's been some justice given, uh, given especially in the Yugoslavia one, a lot of those warlords have been brought to justice. I know Kar Karazic and uh, can't remember the Croatian guy's name, but maybe you've seen the, vi the video of him drinking poison as his uh, conviction was uh, upheld. So... Another criticism of UN peacekeeping forces, and we see this in Africa all the time, is there's so much incidences. I, oh, I don't know so much, but there's enough incidences of sexual violence and uh, thievery amongst uh, citizens of the host nation. So as it stands, peacekeeping forces essentially can't do very much. We do have a quote-unquote international army, but the rules of engagement are very strict. They kind of just are not necessarily protecting people in host nations and if anything, I think if you're someone in Rwanda who saw that, or if you're someone in these former Yugoslavia states that were getting shelled as the peacekeeping forces just kind of watched and did nothing, how does that make you feel? It would make you pro it would make me personally probably feel a lot of resentment for an organization that claims to be here, quote unquote, keeping the peace. It's in the name. So I think with a uh, you know, the hard sell is uh, funding and giving up some of your sovereignty. Like you can make an argument, oh, I'm being occupied by this international force. But, you know, in cases of war crimes, which are, you know, outlined by the Rome Statute and Geneva Convention, I guess if you're not a signatory on the Rome Statute, you can say, oh, we don't agree with that definition. But the challenge here is to make the argument that these people should be here in your country. And Oftentimes, if there is, say, a dictator who gets power or someone who's abusing their role, like Idi Amin in Uganda, for example, he would probably never allow UN peacekeeping forces in there. But at some point, you just kind of have to say as an international community that this is unacceptable. We agree that this is genocide. We agree that this is a crime against humanity. This is unacceptable. I don't care if you I don't care if you don't want us here. You, you kind of have to go in and do something or else we'll keep having things that we see in Gaza right now. You'll have another Rwanda. You'll see what we happened in Rwanda. As it stands, the conditions, I think maybe in Gaza, we're seeing this too, the conditions to repeat uh, the sheer loss of life that happened in Rwanda and in Yugoslavia and is happening in Gaza, they still exist. There's no way that we can sort of um, sort of push back against this. So with a stronger UN, with a stronger tangible military force that can go in there and do anything with a you know, better leadership, better rules of engagement. I think that's something that would definitely prevent a uh, huge loss of life, like in Gaza. So I see a lot of benefits to it personally. You know, it seems to me um, incredibly beneficial if the world community was willing to step in in difficult situations and just kind of go in and take charge and try to resolve things. It obviously will always be messy. But Something that pushes me in this favor is that the world um, the world affairs situation right now is unstable. 
and seems to be getting worse. There's just more conflict between superpowers and everybody else. But also, we're facing a future of climate change, water shortages, resource scarcity that could drive a lot of conflict. And this is just the way the planet is going because we're burning up the planet and we're destroying nature. So as people are hungry, they can't get the resources they need, they can't get the water they need, countries could fight with each other or countries could have civil wars and sort of internal conflicts over this stuff. And if we don't have a world system that can um, manage this kind of violence and reduce it, like we're just going to see um, violence break out so much more in so many more places, enough that it could really be destabilizing for the world, or at least for the world economy. And we need, we just have to figure this out. I mean, and we have to be willing to go into a messy situation and, and try to fix it instead of just being like, oh, I don't know, you know, we can't do anything. Like, it just won't work anymore. Um, so uh, I guess considering the problem of the climate, there is something that reminds me specifically of olive trees, which are basically indigenous to Palestine and olive oil is also very famous because of that and all there are some olive trees in Palestine and there are fields and farmers that have been there for like hundreds and hundreds of years and through those olive trees they I mean they run their economy their households depend on on them and at the same time, the olive tree has been a metaphor of resistance um, among many poets in Palestine, especially like uh, the Palestine, famous Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish. He wrote a lot about olive trees. And it reminds me of a recent incident that happened in connection to that. I'm trying to connect it to the, uh, the climate change and climate threats, which is that during this conflict even, the Israeli settlers, civilian settlers who are armed along with their military have taken, have, you know, marched on the fields of, you know, Palestinian farmers. And they have even recently, they shot a boy named Bilal Saleh, who was a Palestinian farmer just collecting, collecting olives from the tree. And he was shot by a, Palest uh, a Jewish settler, a Zionist settler, who was a civilian but he wanted to evacuate them out of their property. And in this tragic moment, from this uh, event, it can be deduced that at the same time where there are human casualties, at the same time there are casualties related to climate, related to plantations, related to the 100 years old trees too, which might have been you know, uh, a fodder for the coming generations. I mean, a huge part of their economy and household depends on that. So this, the conflicts like these are not only destructive for the nature, for the food chain, but at the same time, they are um, destroying human lives. So we have to make sure that 
wars are not only problem, problematic on terms of human on humanitarian levels but at the same time the whole military military industrial complex which supplies all those arms and all those machine guns and all those bombs and produces them it it such a military complex thrives on different wars in the world if there are no wars i mean their arms business is not going to run and i guess this is something which is rarely explored which is that how much of a carbon footprint global militaries and their military industrial complexes have on the environment for example us has the largest military in the entire world similarly china has a huge huge military i mean do we have any study around that what is the carbon footprint of these militaries i mean they are consuming heavy metals using heavy metals heavy fuels to make armaments to make jets to make planes to make ships and i mean it's humongous so i think th- when in some sort of a international un- uh, or empowered united nations nation is created then what we will also need something for global peace is to slowly disarm the way it happened in, in terms of you know salt 1 and salt 2 between russia and usa they you know slowly disarmed their nuclear weapons and nuclear arsenals in the same way that should also be applied to other military production and consumption because otherwise we are going to live in that prisoner's dilemma because in which one state start, tries to you know stack the pile up and the other follows and it is not good and not sustainable neither for world peace nor for our environment yeah yeah that's a terrific point you make about um needing to gradually disarm our militaries around the world and what it makes me think about is efforts to um avoid the proliferation of nuclear weapons around the world. And so I've heard about arrangements that the United States made with certain countries that wanted nuclear weapons and they said no, don't get nuclear weapons. We will protect you. Like we will have an alliance, we will look out for you if you get attacked. You don't need them. We got you. Right? And that is a helpful dynamic in some ways but we see the problems of the united states being the world police <laughs> and so but you would have a similar thing if we had that united nations capable of managing conflict so that the us russia china other countries could reduce their military but feel a sense of safety because there is some force in the world that can come in and protect them if they get attacked. And so right now we're still caught in these arms races that people support because they feel safer. Like oh the other guy has more weapons than me, I need more weapons to protect myself against yeah. them. And but then they do the same. <laughs> they say, "Oh, well now you have more weapons, now I need more weapons to protect against you." And it you know it doesn't get anywhere and so to i hear a lot of people just sort of in a vague way saying oh yeah countries should just give it up they should just like stop the weapons just stop being bad you know 
but I don't think they can get out of that arms race without some international layer to provide protection because who's going to unilaterally disarm and then feel unsafe against the other side? I don't see any other way to break out of that. I think that's a very good point. And, you know, we kind of need the urgency on this. So if I may go off of that, um, you know, the the largest amount of nuclear weapons that actually existed in the world was about 60,000. That is an absurd amount of nuclear weapons that could probably blow up every single planet in our solar system, including Pluto. So now it's about 30,000. You know, the US and Russia are the ones that had most of uh, the nuclear weapons supply. There was a treaty called New Start. And uh, it's great. Both sides have done a good job of reducing nuclear weapons as it stands. However, it's still enough to just blow up the world 20, 30 times over. So Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the nuclear bombs that were dropped on them, about 70,000 casualties came immediately from that. And then even more from the after effects of, say, burns and radiation. I don't know if that statistic actually is included in the 70,000 in about each city that uh, were killed. But current atomic bombs, uh, they are just so much more powerful than the ones dropped on um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I've, I've been to both cities. You know, you can still go there. If an atomic bomb was dropped on, say, Manhattan today, that would just be gone. All of New York and its surrounding area would be gone. And where there's area of concern right now, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia currently has the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world, including tactical nuclear weapons, although they're not the only country with tacti tactical nuclear weapons. But... Um, they just pulled out of the comprehensive nuclear test ban. So we have had a ban on testing nuclear weapons in the world. Uh, there's also been nuclear weapons tested in the atmosphere. There's been nuclear weapons tested underground. There's been nuclear weapons tested in the sea. And there's been huge effects. And in fact, there's even been civilian uh, casualties and ramifications that have come from the testing of nuclear weapons. You know, since, you know, North Korea has nuclear capabilities now. So a rogue state like North Korea having nuclear weapons and just What's being done? There's so many sanctions on them already, but that hasn't been enough. They were still able to achieve it. You know, Israel has nuclear weapons too. I don't think they would use it in uh, Gaza because that would affect their own sovereign territory. But um, as it stands, I want to reiterate that global conflicts are increasing and the world is becoming more violent. With the existence of such destructive weapons, I truly believe, I don't think we're there yet, but the risk of one of these nuclear weapons going off, it's not neg it's not negligible. Like it's increasing. So we we really need now some kind of body that can actually tangibly do something about this. And it's going to take the whole world's effort to actually do something tangible. As it stands, the, the Security Council are the people that can do something tangible with peacekeeping forces. We can go to the GA and the UN and write a resolution condemning uh, North Korea or Iran getting nuclear weapons all we want. But ultimately, that's nothing more than a strongly worded letter. So really, with this new UN, you need peacekeeping forces. I think there's two things. You need peacekeeping forces that have uh, more room to operate, that are more strictly controlled. There's more, uh, how can I say, there's tighter watch on the troops involved to prevent uh, sex crimes or uh, you know, invading homes. And you need, you know, one of the proposals of the Human Survival Project has potentially been for the UN to have a stockpile of nuclear weapons as a measure of deterrence, which is one option we could do, but you, you, we really, we need this now—a system that's tangible uh, 
to stop nations from nuclear proliferation because we failed. I think North Korea is the most immediate example of this. And who knows what will happen as, as uh, global conflicts increase, and especially with, um, you know, we pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. And, you know, Iran sponsors Hamas. So what is their response going to be as Israel increases their violence? You know, Lebanon's had some uh, Israeli bombardments into their own territory. What does that mean for the region? We talk about um, increasing this conflict worldwide. We're at huge risk right now of making this conflict spread out. And the current bodies that we have, it's clearly not working to me. So this is why we need this now. So what uh, you said, Ben, it, is, uh, it reminds me of something. And that is that currently we have at international level a global crisis of trust between global citizens and the global institutions. And by that I mean is that with this Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or some might say we should call it occupation, during this crisis, what has happened is that the world is becoming more polarized between the West supporting Israel and the second or so-called third world supporting the Palestinian cause, even if not physically or materially, even morally. So this suggests that there is a huge portion of world population which is not trusting the Bretton Woods institutions or the West, um, Western Europe and North American-led world order. And that world order um, includes United Nations and global governing system. So in order for something to happen, something good to happen, you have to make sure that all, or, or at least majority of the nations in the world have uh, a trust in your system. Because unless they don't, those countries don't trust your system, they are not going to be part of it. They are not going to trust any decisions that that system initiates. So for that, it is necessary that you have to win the trust of those nations. And you cannot do that by exposing yourself and behaving contradictory in a way. For example, the whole Western Europe, France, UK, and America, Canada, these countries have been exposed in a bad, bad way. And that is that, okay, fine. Whatever happens, media has been in frenzy. Do you condemn Hamas? Do you condemn Hamas? Do you condemn Hamas? Okay, fine. We all do condemn Hamas. But this is not the question. The point is, Hamas is only operating through Gaza territory. Okay, fine. You are bombing Gaza territory because they, you know, um, sent missiles from that territory on Israel. But what about West Bank? West Bank is a region which is divided into three further regions. One is 20% of it is controlled by Palestinian Authority. Other 20% is controlled by uh, Palestinian Authority and Israel mutually. And remaining 60% of it is controlled by Israeli government. And there is no Hamas there. I mean, there is no Hamas. There are no terrorist organizations in West Bank. Why is that being bombed? And at the same time, Countries like United States are still signing, you know, funding bills like $3.4 billion aid was given to Israel recently. I mean, all this is happening. And then you are expecting from the third world or the least developed or the Muslim world 
that you don't trust our global system. I mean, why would that? I mean, it reinforces the idea of that you are a difference, that there is a Christian, white man, Western Europe, American-led civilization, and then there is a rest of the world. And they are operating against it. So rather than bridging that gap, what these political actions does is that, that, that they reinforce and further polarize the world into different blocks, which means that any further order led by the democratic ideals of liberalism, of human rights, um, uh, or of United Nations will be severely doubted by the third world, not just in economic terms. I mean, first it was used to be like there is a global system, it operates in an extractive new imperial, new colonial way, which is problematic for the third world. But now it has turned, it has intensified further into something verily, very um, contradictory in terms of moral values. So that's why, that's why it is very necessary and it is essential that somehow you have to win the public trust or trust of the third world so that they can, you know, consider that, okay, fine, UN is a global body. We want to reform it. We have, it has to become more inclusive. But if they don't trust that organization, they will say, okay, fine. They have, the American and Europeans have invented another way to dominate us or, you know, to pursue their own interests. So you have to win that public opinion. And one thing, one promising thing in this regard that has happened is that many people in the Western Europe and in America and throughout the world have come up in support of Palestinian people. Because I guess it is not the boundary of right or wrong. It is much, because right and wrong are sometimes relative, but it is much more of a boundary of oppressed and oppressor. And because one is more powerful, and the other is not. Even if we subtract the Hamas out of it, I mean, Palestinian kids, they deserve a chance at life. So, given all these things, I think that it's uh, before moving on to all these proposals, we have to generate uh, some sort of a public opinion about an international body that they can trust and then talk about reforming it. So this is what I think might be helpful. Well, and I don't want to, um, well, I don't know, maybe I do want to promote the Human Survival Project. But, you know, the for such a change to take place, it has to happen at the level of citizens around the world. Because the way things are politically constructed right now you know, those um, wealthier Western powers don't feel like they have to change because they believe that the current system has been working for them, you know, and, and they can look around and say, hey, see how much money we have, see how much access to cool goods we have and our standard of life. And, you know, we're in charge of things and it feels good. Um, but I think people in those countries fail to realize the level of risk that we're under right now. And like, we're about to get clobbered 
by the climate change and nature and pandemics and nuclear weapons and like migration. Like we could have over a billion people on the move because of, you know, their environment being destroyed or violent conflict. So if we don't manage those, even those wealthier countries will suffer pretty soon. Like these are not far away problems. Like this is coming really soon to a neighborhood near you. So I think if we can help people understand that dynamic, they'll be like, oh, okay, I guess this won't work much longer. And I guess we do need to change. Um, and, you know, it happens really from citizens talking to citizens around the world. You know, um, we can't just sit around and expect our political leaders to just do it. Like we have to have the right conversations to support them in doing the right thing. Um, yeah. And to go off both of your points, you know, I think, um, Sarmad, especially you make a great point about what is the goal here of, uh, you know, a West kind of a West versus the global South um, kind of dynamic we're having in terms of bipolarity. I think something that's very interesting within our own country, the United States, um, is that the younger generation you go, actually the support for Palestine becomes greater. So, you know, from a constructivist perspective, it will be interesting to see uh, what will what will support for Israel look like in the United States in 20, 30, 40 years? Uh, there's clear signs that especially Gen Z, it's almost the majority, it might even be the majority, barely, are pro-Palestine on this issue. But again, it's really hard to look at just the horrific things that is going on in Gaza, you know, with the asymmetric uh, response right now to what's happening. But, you know, as far as going after criminals, uh, war criminals, so to speak, the body that does that is the International Criminal Court. And I want to just reiterate how ineffective that it's been. So as it stands, there are 31 cases that have been brought to the International Criminal Court. Every single one of them is African. You know, there's war crimes going on all over the world, yet why are only Africans the ones that have been brought to this court? There's been, I believe, five prosecutions that have happened, of course, on Africans, but there are currently 40 arrest warrants listened, uh, released in the world. Uh, two notable people who have arrest warrants right now, one is Vladimir Putin uh, in Russia, and the other is, I believe her name is Maria Lavova Belova. I swear that's her real name. Uh, so... As outlined by the Rome Statute, you know, there's 60 countries that have signed on to this. Um, the forceful removal of children in a war zone to your territory is a war crime. Russia is doing that right now. And Maria Lovobelova, she's the person responsible for doing this. But can you imagine the ICC actually trying to arrest Vladimir Putin? Like if he steps foot in America and he's arrested, what would happen? So only 60 countries are members of the ICC, and the ICC can only operate uh, in countries, they only have jurisdiction in countries that have signed off onto the ICC. And in fact, when they've gone after, uh, rightfully so, countries that are possibly committing war crimes or crimes against humanity, uh, we've seen evidence of countries just pulling out of the agreement. So Burundi in 2017 is an example of this. There was political violence in Burundi. The ICC started to go after the leader of Burundi, I forget his name, at that time, and he just in 2017 pulled out of the ICC. Guess they can't do anything now. We look at Duarte in the Philippines when he had, uh, you know, he's uh, adamantly gone after drug dealers to the point to where you just straight up get the death penalty if you're a drug dealer. I think maybe on a personal opinion, that's a bit much and might violate human rights. 
But uh, when he faced criticism from that from the ICC, he just pulled out of it. So the current system for going after and holding people accountable for war crimes, like, can you imagine if the ICC issued an arrest warrant for Netanyahu? I mean, it's meaningless. They're not a signatory on that. And in fact, another organization responsible with going after and enforcing the rules of war is the International Red Cross slash Red Crescent slash, uh, I forget the Jewish ones, Red Star of David. Maybe that's not right. But they have no military. They have no power. It's it's laughable. It's like the General Assembly version of a police force. You can't really do anything. So, you know, this issue of, uh, of uh, you know, a bipolar world with uh, West versus Global South, there's just no there's no body to hold anybody accountable. And when people have been held accountable, it's only been African leaders. Or, I mean, I think Putin and Maria Lavova Belova deserve these arrest warrants. But can you imagine arrest warrant being issued for Bush for Abu Ghraib during the Iraq war? I can't. So the only people that are currently being held accountable are non-Westerners. Whereas I think that you could make a strong case that people responsible for the Iraq war should be brought to something like the ICC in The Hague. So with this new governing body, clearly it's asymmetric. The current system is asymmetric, where if I'm someone from the global south, why would I have faith in the current institutions that we have? All of the evidence shows me that these Western-dominated uh, IGOs, intergovernmental organizations, they failed my, they failed my countries. They failed the global South. So when we're reimagining a UN, you know, Sarmad, you say it's undemocratic, and I would agree with that point. You need to have more voices from the global South and former uh, countries that were colonized. They have to equally have the same share of power and representation in this new UN governing body, or else the current systems will just allow for more and more violence to escalate. And as if you illustrated, Shelby, we don't have time to be focusing on uh, man-made war. Climate change is climate change is so dire right now. Migration as a consequence of climate change. You know, Tuvalu is. Uh, I'm sorry to jump all over, but Tuvalu in the Pacific Island this t- is a Pacific island, and uh, it's hardly above sea level. If sea levels can uh, consistently keep rising, this country may not exist. In fact, Australia has already accepted refugees from Tuvalu. So we have so many existential threats to humanity, aside from more that we have to be focusing on. We just don't have time for this. We need this now. We need governing bodies. We need an intergovernmental organization that truly has equal representation and the same kind of symmetric power and ability to tangibly do something for the global South. We need them to have the same amount of uh, tangible power as the West right now. And that is currently, I think, the biggest area in which we are failing and the biggest driving area of what is causing the current UN to fail. You know, a moment ago, you were describing the international um, court as, you know, not all the countries are in on it. Not all the countries have signed those agreements. And, And you can extend that across most of what the United Nations does. You know, it's it's um, I don't know, I'd say overprotecting national sovereignty. And it's just saying like, okay, you can sign on to this treaty or not. It's voluntary. You know, like it's rare for a treaty to have every country in the world sign it and agree to it. 
Um, and so that's not a system for vigorous action in the world. That's just a voluntary system where everybody gets to do whatever they want. And that's not going to solve our existential threats if we have to just beg and plead and hope that enough people sign a treaty that's not going to get enforced anyway. And so this is the paradigm shift that we need in the world where we are like everybody's in on it. Okay, this applies to everybody. You know, we're going to make decisions. It's going to apply to everybody. No one is above the law. You know, it's fair. It's equal. Everybody plays ball, you know, but the conflicts between countries, which are real and have to be managed, they would be contained within a political process so that countries are not trying to beat on each other with weapons or um, dominate each other in other ways. There's a place where you go where we're all going to talk about it and we're going to be civilized adults. And like, that's how we're going to work out our disagreements, you know, but, but without such a thing, everybody just resorts to violence or economic pressure or other forms of domination to try to get what they want. Cause we don't have a system that applies to everybody. And if I may add one more thing, uh, I just want for clarification right now, I think a term that now that it's on my mind is collective punishment that has consistently been brought up with uh, Gaza. Um, Destroying homes, and, and Gaza really is the poster child for where collective punishment is happening. As outlined in collective punishment, destroying homes, that is collective punishment. So, or de combat, I believe is how you pronounce it. It's a French term, it means non-combatant. Um, so before World War II, you know, we had, this is before the 1949 Geneva Convention. There's been, again, four Geneva Conventions. When you hear the Geneva Convention, people refer to the 1949 one. The original one originates from, as I'm sure everybody listening to this knows, is the Second Italian War of Independence in 1959. And in fact, the author of uh, the first Geneva Convention, Henri Duntant, I think is his name, is one of the is actually the first recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize with another person. Um, but uh, collective punishment has been going on since... Israel's inception, because they've been destroying Palestinian homes. And when you turn off water, you turn off electricity, that is collective punishment. When you force people into a separation wall where they can't leave and they're arbitrarily harassed, that's collective punishment. It is just so textbook. And you have the Israeli ambassador go on the news in the UK and say, oh, no, it's not elective collective punishment because it's our own citizens. We can do whatever we want to them. I think my goodness, do you treat these people as humans or do you think of them as animals? And, you know, there's evidence that perhaps this particular ambassador might not really truly feel that these people are deserved of human dignity. So the fact that we have such rules existing, yet no one's following it, means we're failing. And so another example I can give is we used to, like the unspoken rules of baseball, uh, people parachuting. In World War II, there's no rule that says you can't shoot people parachuting, but it was kind of a gentleman's agreement, like the unspoken rules of baseball, that you don't shoot at people who are parachuting because they're hors de combat. Um, and so, you know, in World War II, people followed those rules. Now that's an official rule. It is a war crime to shoot at people who are parachuting. But, you know, I think the fact that, my goodness, in World War II, people had, at that point, amongst combatants, the dignity not to, not to shoot at people parachuting. And now here in Gaza, people are trying to justify something, this kind of collective punishment so blatantly, and there's no ramifications. 
I mean, my goodness, what? how would you feel if you're a Palestinian or a member of the Arab world? You would just consistently feel that the West has an asymmetric power balance. All of our intergovernmental organizations favor the West, and you'd feel helpless. So then this is truly an existential threat. If this continues, the risk of the wider conflict or more terrorism, I think, is not negligible. I think it's incredibly tangible. Because, you know, the, unfortunately, as humans, I think sometimes we have too much of a desire for eye for an eye. So if your end game, if you're Israel in this is, so to speak, make sure Hamas never does this again and create peace. I don't think you're doing a very good job of creating peace. You're only doing a very good job of creating hostilities that will forever last in the next generation. What will that mean for the next generations coming, not only in Israel, but in the Arab and Muslim world in general? Because I'm sure maybe Sarmad can speak more on this, but... I'm sure a lot of the perspective right now is, oh, this is someone who I have a lot in common with, where the West is just allowing these people to be massacred under collective punishment. Even though we have a rule book, the rules aren't being enforced. So what do you do? I would like to add on this. In Muslim world, uh, basically when it comes to ISIS or extremist or terrorist organizations, which you know brand islam as their identity they are they have a very hard stance when it comes to west and they are always skeptical of it right and at the same time when things like that happen when like children are bombed and no one is saying anything about it and everyone is trying to justify it you know what they come up with and they say they say see we told you West is like this. We told you. West is our enemy. We told you. They don't care about any human rights or anything else. So what happens is that they garner more support. And another point that I want to make is that as far as the bro code or the rules of war are concerned, as far as Hamas is concerned, they even they took some hostages. No matter how bad they are, they took some hostages. They released some of them. And there are interviews available that those hostages were not harmed. I mean, if someone is sticking to some sort of rules, it is not Israel's, Israel, Israeli army. It is rather the other side. And it is not, I, I'm not, not a fan of Hamas or a supporter of Hamas. But I am saying whatever they did was evil. But at the same time, they are at least showing some sort of dignity when it, when it comes to hostages. And at the same time, what will happen? For example, imagine a scenario in which Israel wipes out all the West Bank, all the Palestinian population, you know, takes control of all the territory. What is going to happen? The consequences are that if I am a Palestinian living in West Bank, all my family members, four to five of my family members are bombed, and I am only orphan left, what I will do? I would, I, would, I would very much like to avenge the death of my relatives and my loved ones. And what is, the, uh, what is the way to do that? I will try to find an enemy of my enemy. And that might be in the shape of Hamas or some other organization. We have to tackle this element. The more you are going to bomb civilians, the more supporters Hamas is going to get in coming years. It's like a father having a, like 20 to 30 children who can just die in peace. Hamas is like feeling uh, like that right now, because all those orphans, all those little kids, 
they are not going to come out of it you know so smoothly and loving is right and the third thing is that what this uh, on the global level there are going to be two consequences the one thing is that there is there will be a growing anti-semitism even if israel wins still people are going to feel bad about the jewish population and the jews of israel all around the world that what they did was a genocide and there will be a growing anti-semitism and the other thing which which will you know increase throughout the west that is going to be islamophobia because more and more muslim populations will be you know suspected and the western population will become skeptical of it and along with that there might be a new wave of terrorism in making because a lot of disgruntled you know uh, or disparate terrorist group groups might capitalize on this in on this tragedy to garner support from different you know uh, sections of the population for example we are sitting here in pakistan right now i am in sitting in an urban center someone might be sitting in a very tribal very rural area and there might be some groups who might want to say see this is what is happening and he and that young man is feeling helpless and he wants to do something so what will happen i mean there is a fertile ground on which terrorist organizations can work and recruit so it is going to be messy messy uh, there are going to be messy messy consequences so we have to be very careful about i mean even if even if israel wins it is not going to be an easy situation for the world for the incoming decades so it it must be tackled very uh, with caution for the west too if there are going to be uh, if this conflict generates a lot of migrants where those people are going you have to accommodate them somewhere and given the current scenario that shall be talked about too that there is a challenge of immigration in especially in europe right now the working population is decreasing and is on decline and their dependent population is like where the people who are not working or in old age are increasing and they are asking to you know youth from the third world to come and you know work over there and take admissions and study and stuff like that eventually i mean those people who are coming from all over the world are going to be uh, going to be very you know entrenched stakeholders in the system and there will be pressure groups from within and these things can eventually increase um, phenomena like populism islamophobia xenophobia and it is going to be a bad bad situation so we have to be very cautious when it comes to tackling the israeli palestinian situation right now i'm going to ask a question that i don't even know if there's an answer to it um but i'm hearing both of you um critical of the israeli government's actions in gaza right now and the many people um dying and suffering because of it I completely hear you um and I feel that pain also. I want to just recognize how Israelis are feeling right now and that they are um I think feeling wounded and abused even historically. 
from so many years of anti-Semitism, um, the Holocaust, and you know, long before. So that's in there. They're also feeling a current need for safety. And so I think their fear could be that if they simply stop um, um, trying to beat Hamas and they just stop fighting, that they would just be sitting ducks, that they would just be waiting for the bombs to come in, you know, and Hamas and others would just continue <laughs> throwing bombs into Israel and killing their people. Um, and so I want to just recognize their fear and wonder what what might the world do to help them feel safe and secure what could the world do to help them reorient their relationship with palestinians you know as as this is kind of in my mind i'm i'm thinking about um in south africa when apartheid ended you know, they had a truth and reconciliation process, which involved lots of deep conversations between people of all sides to not like punish each other, but just to talk about it and understand and offer apologies. And like, you know, what if we had a system where everybody could just say, sorry for being mean to you for so many years? There's been so much horrendous behavior on all sides in this place. What if there could be a process for just saying sorry? We want to be in a different relationship with you now. Um, but they might not, in this current situation, be able to just generate that themselves. They're not feeling loving and agreeable right now. But maybe with outside help, they could make a different relationship somehow. So huh. I don't know I if there's an answer, but I offer it to the world to think about. I uh, don't have an exact answer, but I have a few comment, comments to make that sometimes when it comes to suffering or victimhood, of course, Jews were a victim. They were victims of Holocaust. But historically, there has been an anti-sentiment, uh, anti-Semitism existing in the Western world. I mean, when a reconquista happened, when the Muslims or Arabs were expelled out of the span, and you know, Europeans started to, you know, they, you know, reconquered the span. What they did was they expelled Jews from that very area. When then it comes to World War One and Two, again, Holocaust happened, the worst genocide. And Jews were, you know, they were all over the world in the West. But they were, you know, exterminated. And after that, even in the, from 1950s onwards, in the coming decades, even Edward Said, the guy who wrote Orientalism, even he mentions that before Muslims were stereotyped in Oriental forms, the Jews were also stereotyped and there was a growing anti-Semitism in the Western world. So what the West did was 
that it rather than if they had a, had felt guilt after the world war 2 they should have given them a home within the europe because europe victimized jews they killed them they exterminated them but they went on to palestine in the middle east and carved out a land for them and not only they just you know gave them that land but kept that you know conflict between those two communities even when in 1923 the belfour agreement happened it was written that jews will be given the homeland but they will not you know be show any prejudice towards non jewish population of that region but over time this has not been the case we have six days war we have like arab israel wars and what happened is that israel has been trying to expand its boundaries not recognizing the palestinian people and their right to their land and when you don't have i mean the the situation is that palestinians who have lost their loved ones their family members and they are totally orphaned as a nation what they believe is that okay fine if there is a boy he would say, uh, there is a guy uh, who would say okay i have given my three sons to this battle i will give one more even because there is nothing more we just don't want mere life they say we want a life with dignity and it reminds me of that sentence from ocean wong which is that i can bear any pain as long as it has meaning and meaning is to have a dignified life to have my own home not being invaded by anyone not my farm my private property my olive trees not being invaded by the third party and this right i think every human being should have this right to live on his land according to his values the same right which jews have which palestinian have and which the muslims or non muslims or atheist or whatever you are just by being virtue of human being you have that and along with that there is another thing that i want to say is that the whole idea of anti zionism i mean uh, uh, sorry not anti zionism of zionism that supporting the zionist idea what happens is that the whole west is right now uh, even in terms of world leaders has become a zionist because they are supporting a zionist government in israel and by that I, the, the whole idea of zionism is that jews are not safe safe from what it means they are not safe to live in western europe or america so what you did was that you gave them a country in palestine or middle east so that they can be safe and right now what is the whole idea is that jews are not safe in the middle east that's why we all need to protect them over there that's why we will give them aid we will supply them arms we will supply them all those other things and i think that this idea of zionism that jews are not safe is anti semitic in its own nature because it is telling that somehow implicitly we cannot live with jews they are unsafe because we hurt them so it me and to reiterate for as far as the immigration was concerned muslims and jews have historically lived in peace when they were expelled from spain they went on to ottoman empire they were welcome 
when they were ex- out uh, uh, i mean uh, after holocaust when they went as immigrants immigration was always open in palestine they lived side by side but what has happened eventually is that by the creation of that colonizing or apartheid state and supporting it under the garb of zionism has created a lot of problems and that's why there is a whole orthodox jewish community which says that yes we are not zionist we are against the apartheid regime of israel so i think that um every life matters and it is not like to uh, some if someone is palestinian he, he, his pain is less i mean they have suffered for 70 80 years under occupation and their i mean the rights have been violated by the israeli army but what israel is having right now is having you know testing the dose of his own medicine what they have been doing over the 70 years what hamas did on 7th october was a reaction i mean whenever a terrorist group tries to become violent is that they want to be heard they want to cry out loud because there is no other option i mean they were doing nothing up until now i mean i guess there were like 7 to 8 years of gap of violence in which hamas did nothing when it comes to you know uh, bombing israel or something like that but even in those times israel was doing the same thing so now it's like again they are provoked and all withdrawn into so the situation is becoming intensified and there are no winners i mean there are no winners out of this war no winners it will be a collective failure of world leaders of champions of human rights of the muslim world of the arab world of the western world it's a collective failure and it's not about religion or uh ethnicity or race or something it's like collective failure on collective on human on the basis of human principles i mean there is no principle in the world that can that that can justify that killing of kids bombing hospitals or churches is justified in any way no matter what i think you're right that this is a collective failure of everybody and i wish i had better answers Yeah. I mean that's that's just the kind of thought and feeling I'm stuck with is that um I just have to watch this horrific thing play out and nobody knows what to do and everybody's stuck and we don't have any tools to stop it mm-hmm. and um I don't know it's i feel really sad well so guys we've been talking for a while um you know sort of exploring how a better world system could help this problem in warfare generally um you know we may want to wrap up soon but is there anything we missed or anything that you want to put out there that you haven't yet maybe discuss a little briefly that if in given the current scenario where united nations is not powerful enough we don't have a world government or a world military to intervene is there some sort of a possible solution 
on part of our you know ourselves rather than sharing social media and you know things like that is there something that we can do or force our governments to do that can somehow you know mediate the effects of this online crisis i'm just wondering it's a great question sarmad it it feels as a citizen of the west you know they say what's what's frustrating being american is they on this issue both parties have unwavering support for israel no strings attached in fact what is appalling to me is biden wanted 14 billion initial dollars to give to israel i think he got what 3 to 4 billion they're sending but yeah. that, that that's an absurd amount to me just just and in fact in 1954 there was the i believe it's called the lavron affair where um uh israel got um jewish citizens of egypt to plant a false flag attack in american british and egyptian owned businesses and cinemas that were to be with bombs that were detonated uh after uh closing hours and it was meant to be a false flag operation to make british troops stay uh in egypt and keep sort of an occupation of the suez canal so what's frustrating to me is like why does my government support them at all costs when historically they tried to harm Americans? They tried to harm American interests. Imagine if another country did that. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, World War II is, I mean, the 50s is different. But, you know, we fought Germany in World War II. It's different. But this is the same government, you know, that did that to us. Why? Why do we accept this from Israel to me? And, yeah, I think another ramification I mean, of this. Uh, I, wish, I wish the same amount could have been sent to or could be utilized to mediate this crisis or to solve the problems. I mean, rather than selling it, giving it to them and saying, okay, go fight fight with them. It's like, give some amount to one party, give some amount to the other and tell them to, yes, we are going to give you the money. Just settle it down, calm it down, cease fire, solve this issue. Let's come together, sit somewhere. I mean, in crises like such, what happens in I will give an example of the village where a crisis happens or when a crisis happens in a family, what happens is that the leader of the family or someone who is wise enough or experienced enough or who is elder, he makes all those kids sit together and try to solve it. I mean, in this, such a scenario, world powers like or world superpowers like America, China, Russia, all the, they need to, you know, uh, sit together in consensus and put pressure on both the parties so that they can sit together, sort it out, find a solution. I mean, again, what can I say? The veto power, I mean, what happens is that there is no consensus. Someone vetoes. And at the same time, there are double standards when it, some issue is compared to Ukraine war. When Russia invades, it's like, okay, fine, Russia is the bad guy, but here Israel is doing the same thing. So a Palestinian kid throwing a stone is like terrorist and someone in uh, force of Zelensky or from Ukraine taking a rifle is a freedom fighter. Again, different narratives, bogged up priorities, and these things are exposing the world order and the global leaders. Excellent point, Sarmad. And you know, uh, like I said, what is the end game of this? You know, we've talked about as international community, a two state solution, a one state solution. 
But and you know what what is Palestine with no Hamas looks like? Well, it's the West Bank, where you still have a system of apartheid. Um, Israeli soldiers and settlers harass Palestinian citizens every day. They verbatim, they're not verbatim, they literally kick out Palestinians from their homes, and that same home, a Jewish settler will move in and taunt these Palestinians. You know, it's I think a good parallel, it's like to what we did with the Native Americans here in the United States. We broke every single treaty we had with them and kept taking yeah. their land. Uh, uh, of course, I condemn Hamas. What they did was evil. But I think the question you have to ask is, how did we get here? You, you look yeah. at our history, and there's so many Native Americans. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of, of the Malcolm X. Uh, it reminds me of Malcolm X. He once said that you put a knife three inch deep in my back, and you pull out one, and you say it's improvement. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, great point. So I think just ultimately, I think right now people think too short-sighted. What what is what is the what is the ultimate what is what is the ultimate consequence of this in terms of Palestinian statehood? I think in my personal opinion, I don't want to get too much that from this conflict, the possibility of a two-state solution at least with Gaza, I think that will never come to fruition now. What will that mean for the international community in Israel? I think that will just lead to more conflict. Will it lead to more bloodshed at the end of this? I don't know. But will it lead to more hostilities amongst nations? I think unquestionably that this is not good for global peace, period. So, and unfortunately, Palestinians and Palestinian children and, will continue to suffer. Yeah. And globally, for United States, it is not even favorable in economic terms. I mean, you are already involved in Ukraine. Now you are involved in Middle East, and you know who is the you know which country is having the party time of their life? China. I mean, you are all invested and boggled up in these conflicts, supporting rogue states like Israel, and I mean, and you are just caught up here, and they are going to you know build up things in the Indo-Pacific and stuff like that. And eventually, over time, they might overpower you in terms of two ocean navy and you know armament of the seas. So even from a very selfish point of view, it is not in U.S. interest to being you know uh, drawn into wars in the Middle East and conflicts in the you know Eastern Europe and stuff like that. So if there are any rational, sane people who are looking just for specific specific interest of U.S. foreign policy, even then I think it's time that they should come out of this chauvinism, this some sort of, you know, um, uh, irrational, emotional attachment with the idea of Zionism, and they should focus on the future of American people and America as a country so that they can improve their economy or the world influence. Otherwise, if they're I mean, going to spend billions and billions in Ukraine and then Middle East, and they are going to be engaged here for years, then China is going to have a party time and they are going to become the world leaders. So yeah, they should try to think it in these terms. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Thank you, Sarmat. We don't have any um, additional, I don't know, concrete policy proposals or anything other than what we've talked about. Um, but I have two thoughts on my mind that are more, I guess, psychological. Um, one is that 
humans seem to have this ingrained tendency to um, view things as us versus them. And people break into two opposing camps and fight each other, whether that's Israel and Palestine, whether that's liberals versus conservatives, Democrats versus Republicans, U.S. versus China. It's all the same dynamic that humans do. I don't know why. It probably has deep evolutionary roots. You know, our ancestors fought against each other and it works somehow. Um, but now in our world with so many threats, it just doesn't work anymore. And so I would just urge everyone in their life and in their own mind to just be aware of that and resist it any way you can. Like if there's any way you can just not take sides and do battle, that's progress. Because we have to stop doing that or else we're all going to sink ourselves. The other idea I have is sort of a metaphor, um, maybe finishing where we started about our many existential threats in the world. This whole situation feels to me like there's two people on a beach arguing with each other and fighting, and there's a tidal wave coming that is about to destroy them, and they don't even see the tidal wave because they're too busy arguing. And the, they have to wake up and see the tidal wave and take shelter because that's the situation of the world that we're in. And if we don't learn to keep our eye on the big problems amid all this stuff that happens in the world, we're going to go down. Civilization will end if we can't keep our eye on the ball and keep working on that. And so I would just suggest to anyone listening that you keep reminding all the people around you about how important our existential threats are and that we got to stay focused on them or else. So that's where I'm at. So um, we've talked for a while and I think we should wrap up. Um, my brain's getting tired because you guys are smart and you give good ideas and you make my brain work. I love it. So thank you both so much for this conversation today. Thank you for all your great work with the Human Survival Project. Um, I'm grateful for both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Shelby. Thank you, Shelby. Listeners, I'm grateful for you too. Thank you for joining us. Um, if these ideas interest you, um, if you want to know more about the Human Survival Project, go to our website, www.thehumansurvivalproject.org. And while you're there, I suggest go and get yourself on our email list. Uh, we will start putting out email newsletters more regularly soon. And that's a great way to just keep tabs of what's happening with this organization as we build it and grow um, over time. So please stay in touch. Um, I would love to build a relationship with you in that way. All right. Thank you so much. Have an amazing day.
To survive, we must see ourselves first as citizens of the human race. To thrive, we must protect what is beautiful about humanity.